Section 102, Introduction Joseph found that the administration of the church was becoming an overwhelming burden. Therefore, Joseph appears to have worked on the structure for a high council early in 1834. By January 18, he wrote, quote, I reviewed and corrected the minutes, that is, from an earlier meeting, of the organization of the high council. This is taken from the History of the Church, Volume 2, page 31. The minutes were formally adopted by a conference of the priesthood on February the 17th, 1834. These minutes were the product of study and discussion rather than being attributed directly to the Lord. Those participating in the conference on February 17th consisted of 26 high priests, 18 elders, 3 priests, 1 teacher, and 14 private members of the church, making a total of 62. After their adoption, these minutes became section 102 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And here is the text of that section. This day, a general council of 24 high priests assembled at the house of Joseph Smith, Jr. by revelation and proceeded to organize the high council of the Church of Christ, which was to consist of 12 high priests and one or three presidents, as the case may require. Apparently, the 26 high priests constituted the official members of the council. However, all 62 members of the church functioned as a general conference, as we shall see toward the end of the section. Joseph says these 62 members occupied a room in the residence of Joseph Smith, so it must have been extremely crowded. Notice that the new council was to consist of 12 high priests and a presidency of one or three, depending on the need. The high council was appointed by revelation for the purpose of settling important difficulties which might arise in the church, which could not be settled by the church or the bishop's council to the satisfaction of the parties. The council was to be an official body of the church. Difficulties arising in a ward should first be presented to the bishop's council and then appealed to the high council if the parties were not satisfied. The bishop's council was when the bishopric sat as a court. Joseph Smith, Jr., Sidney Rigdon, and Frederick G. Williams were acknowledged presidents by the voice of the council. And Joseph Smith, Sr., John Smith, Joseph Coe, John Johnson, Martin Harris, John S. Carter, Jared Carter, Oliver Cowdery, Samuel H. Smith, Orson Hyde, Sylvester Smith, and Luke Johnson, high priests, were chosen to be a standing council for the church by the unanimous voice of the council. Because the high council was a new judicial body, it functioned under the first presidency. Until the apostles were chosen, the high council was to be directly under Joseph and his counselors. It was therefore to serve under their direction, and its decisions were to be unanimous. The above-named counselors were then asked whether they accepted their appointments and whether they would act in that office according to the law of heaven, to which they all answered that they accepted their appointments and would fill their offices according to the grace of God bestowed upon them. The members of the High Council were asked if they accepted their calling and whether they were willing to perform their leaders under the influence of the Holy Ghost. 
They all agreed. The number composing the council, who voted in the name and for the church, in appointing the above-named counselors, were forty-three, as follows. Nine high priests, seventeen elders, four priests, and thirteen members. The lay members of the church who were present also voted their approval of the new high council. Voted that the high council cannot have power to act without seven of the above-named counselors, or their regularly appointed successors are present. It was then voted that the council would require at least seven of the members to be present in order to compromise a quorum. These seven shall have power to appoint other high priests, whom they may consider worthy and capable to act in the place of absent counselors. Temporary substitutes for the absent members could be appointed with the approval of the council members who were present. Voted that whenever any vacancy shall occur by the death, removal from office for transgression, or removal from the bounds of this church government, of any one of the above-named councillors, it shall be filled by the nomination of the president or presidents, and sanctioned by the voice of a general council of high priests, convened for that purpose to act in the name of the church. Any members of the council removed by death or transgression could be replaced by high priests nominated by the presidency of the council and sanctioned by the general conference of the high priests convened for that purpose. The president of the church, who is also the president of the council, is appointed by revelation and acknowledged in his administration by the voice of the church. The president of the church must also be presented to the conference for its approval. And it is according to the dignity of his office that he should preside over the council of the church. And it is his privilege to be assisted by two other presidents, appointed after the same manner that he himself was appointed. The president of the church is entitled to have two counselors, either of whom can preside in the president's absence. And in case of the absence of one or both of those who are appointed to assist him, he has power to preside over the council without an assistant. And in case he himself is absent, the other presidents have power to preside in his stead, both or either of them. If the councillors are both absent, the president is authorized to preside alone. Whenever a high council of the Church of Christ is regularly organized according to the foregoing pattern, it shall be the duty of the twelve councillors to cast lots by numbers, and thereby ascertain who of the twelve shall speak first, commencing with number one and so in succession to number twelve. The order in which the members of the council shall speak is determined by lot. Whenever this council convenes to act upon any case, the twelve councillors shall consider whether it is a difficult one or not. If it is not, two only of the councillors shall speak upon it, according to the form above written. But if it is thought to be difficult, four shall be appointed. And if more difficult, six, but in no case shall more than six be appointed to speak. The accused in all cases has a right to one half of the council to prevent insult or injustice.
simple cases will be handled by two members of the council, one speaking for each side. More difficult cases will require four or six members, half of them speaking for the accused and the other half speaking for the accuser. And the councillors appointed to speak before the council are to present the case after the evidence is examined in its true light before the council. And every man is to speak according to equity and justice. Once the case has been presented and the evidence examined, each member of the council can express his opinion. Those councillors who draw even numbers, that is, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and 12, are the individuals who are to stand up in behalf of the accused and prevent insult and injustice. In all cases, the accuser and the accused shall have a privilege of speaking for themselves before the council. After the evidences are heard, and the councillors who are appointed to speak on the case have finished their remarks. After the evidences are heard, the councillors, accuser, and accused have spoken. The president shall give a decision according to the understanding which he shall have of the case and call upon the twelve counselors to sanction the same by their vote. Both the accused and the accuser are entitled to speak. Then the president will render his decision and ask the members of the council whether they can support his decision. But should the remaining counselors who have not spoken, or any one of them, after hearing the evidences and pleadings impartially, discover an error in the decision of the president, they can manifest it, and the case shall have a rehearing. And if, after a careful rehearing, any additional light is shown upon the case, the decision shall be altered accordingly. Any members of the council who feel there has been an error in the decision may present his objections, and additional evidence may be taken to see if a new decision should be made. But in case no additional light is given, the first decision shall stand the majority of the council having power to determine the same. If there is a split vote, the majority opinion will constitute the standing decision. In case of difficulty respecting doctrine or principle, if there is not a sufficiency written to make the case clear to the minds of the council, the president may inquire and obtain the mind of the Lord by revelation. If there is a dispute over doctrine or gospel principles, and there is not sufficient scripture to clearly define the problem, then the president may obtain the mind of the Lord by direct revelation. The high priests, when abroad, have power to call and organize a council after the manner of the foregoing to settle difficulties when the parties, or either of them, shall request it. If the members of the council are traveling abroad, they may be requested to set up a council session to settle any membership problems or controversies over doctrine. And the said council of high priests shall have power to appoint one of their own number to preside over such council for the time being. While abroad, a traveling council may appoint one of their own members as temporary president for the time being. It shall be the duty of said council to transmit immediately a copy of their proceedings with a full statement of the testimony accompanying their decision to the High Council of the Seat of the First Presidency of the Church. 
A traveling high council shall transmit a copy of its proceedings and its decisions to the high council at church headquarters. Later on, this high council at church headquarters would turn out to be the quorum of the twelve apostles. Should the parties, or either of them, be dissatisfied with the decision of said council, they may appeal to the high council of the seat of the first presidency of the church, and have a rehearing, which case shall there be conducted according to the former pattern written, as though no such decision had been made. If the parties are not satisfied with the decision submitted from the field, then an appeal may be made to the high council at church headquarters, and a completely new trial may be ordered if the council at headquarters feels it is justified. This council of high priests abroad is only to be called on the most difficult cases of church matters, and no common or ordinary case is to be sufficient to call such council. The traveling or located high priests abroad have power to say whether it is necessary to call such a council or not. The traveling high council shall only convene where it is necessary to handle the most difficult cases, but the traveling high council shall have the authority to decide on whether or not a hearing shall be held while they are in the field. There is a distinction between the high council or traveling high priests abroad and the traveling high council composed of the twelve apostles in their decisions. Even though the quorum of the twelve would not be organized until some time in the future, it is apparent that Joseph knew enough about the total organization of the church to point out that there is a distinction between the traveling high council in the field and the twelve apostles of the church at headquarters. From the decision of the former, there can be an appeal. But from the decision of the latter, there cannot. The decision of the traveling high council in the field can be appealed, whereas the decision of the twelve apostles cannot. The latter can only be called in question by the general authorities of the church in case of transgression. Resolved that the president or presidents of the seat of the first presidency of the church shall have power to determine whether any such case as may be appealed is justly entitled to a rehearing after examining the appeal and the evidences and statements accompanying it. The decision of the Twelve Apostles can only be called into question by the First Presidency in case it involves a serious transgression. The First Presidency shall also determine whether or not the problem may be such that a whole new hearing is required, or they can make their decision on the evidence already submitted. The twelve counselors then proceeded to cast lots or ballot to ascertain who should speak first, and the following was the result, namely, 1. Oliver Cowdery, 2. Joseph Coe, 3. Samuel H. Smith, 4. Luke Johnson, 5. John S. Carter, 6. Sylvester Smith, 7. John Johnson, 8. Orson Hyde, 9. Jared Carter, 10. Joseph Smith, Sr., 11. John Smith, 12. Martin Harris. After prayer, the conference adjourned. Oliver Cowdery, Orson Hyde, Clerks. The final business conducted at this meeting was to have the twelve counselors 
proceed to cast lots to determine their priority. After prayer, the conference was adjourned. This section states that the minutes were prepared and submitted by Oliver Cowdery and Orson Hyde. Section 103. Introduction. It is difficult to imagine the days and nights of agony which Joseph Smith endured after he learned that the saints in Jackson County had now been completely driven from their homes. They had not only lost their homes, but also the sacred dedicated region of the New Jerusalem, and were now striving to survive in the cold, rugged wilderness along the western bank of the Missouri River. So far as we know, Joseph had not had an open revelation from the Lord since December 16, 1833, some two months earlier. These weeks of anxiety and lonely vigil eventually compelled him to desperately reach out to the Lord for the comfort and guidance he needed. In this crisis, what was he expected to do? The following revelation was given on February the 24th, 1834. Here is the text of section 103. Verily I say unto you, my friends, behold, I will give unto you a revelation and commandment, that you may know how to act in the discharge of your duties concerning the salvation and redemption of your brethren who have been scattered on the land of Zion being driven and smitten by the hands of mine enemies, on whom I will pour out my wrath without measure in mine own time. It will be recalled that section 102 is the minutes for the organization of the First High Council in Kirtland. That was an inspired business meeting, so the thread of revelatory communication from the Lord in this present revelation really continues from section 101. The most important words in these two verses are those which set forth the decree of the Lord to pour out his wrath on the enemies of the church, but it says in his own due time. Obviously, this implied a waiting period rather than an immediate thunderclap from the heavens that would devastate the mobs in Jackson County. Amazingly, this judgment did not fall upon Jackson County until 26 years later, when the ravages of civil war suddenly spread like a consuming lava across the entire South. Jackson County was so desolated that nothing was left standing but the skeletons of a few chimneys among the charred ruins. For I have suffered them thus far, that they might fill up the measure of their iniquities, that their cup might be full. The Lord said he had two reasons for delaying the discharge of his wrath upon the mobs of Jackson County. For one thing, the Lord was required to wait until the wickedness of the lawless rabble had filled his cup of wrath to overflowing. Their wickedness had to reach the stage where it aroused the righteous wrath of the intelligences of the universe. The gospel teaches that heavenly judgment cannot be exercised until it has their support. If the father acts prematurely or unjustly, he could lose the confidence of these intelligences and, quote, cease to be God, unquote. This amazing restriction on the father's administration of justice is one of the great laws of heaven which is found exclusively in the Book of Mormon.
No one could be inclined to believe this doctrine if the Lord had not revealed it himself. This is set forth very plainly in Alma 42, verses 13, 22, and 25, and also in Mormon, chapter 9, verse 19. And that those who call themselves after my name might be chastened for a little season, with a sore and grievous chastisement, because they did not hearken altogether unto the precepts and commandments which I gave unto them. The second reason for the temporary delay in the administration of God's wrath upon the mobs was so that the saints could receive the chastisement they deserved. They had been slothful in failing to build a temple and performing their righteous duties as the servants of God. They were presently going through a vigorous shock treatment to display the Lord's great displeasure with their dilatory behavior. But verily I say unto you, that I have decreed a decree which my people shall realize, inasmuch as they hearken from this very hour unto the counsel which I, the Lord their God, shall give unto them. At the same time the Lord has already decreed certain blessings which will be poured out on the saints in Zion, providing they hearken from that very hour to carefully abide by the counsel of their heavenly Father. The saints did not realize it, but the performance of their responsibility was going to be much more difficult than they had supposed. In fact, they were promising things which the Lord already knew they would fall short in performing. We have a similar faltering of the saints in our own time. For example, why don't we have the rest of the Book of Mormon? Over 170 years ago, the Lord gave the saints a conditional promise that he would reveal to the modern church the plates of Laban, the prophetic history of the world recorded by the brother of Jared, and the rest of the Book of Mormon covering the instructions of the Savior to his twelve Nephite disciples just before he concluded his ministry. But we have never received these precious scriptures, and the Lord tells us why. Quote, and your minds in times past have been darkened because of unbelief, and because you have treated lightly the things you have received, which vanity and unbelief have brought the whole church under condemnation, and this condemnation resteth upon the children of Zion, even all. And that's in the Doctrine and Covenants section 84, verses 54 to 57. Our principal offense in modern times is the neglect of the Book of Mormon, as well as the other scriptures. In the Bible Belt, the missionaries often find that people of other faiths have been far more diligent in studying their scriptures than we have been in studying ours. As a result, two-thirds of the plates of Mormon are still lying in the Hill Cumorah, untranslated, unread, and unpublished until the whole church cultivates the study of the Book of Mormon and our other scriptures sufficiently, this treasure of God's revelation will remain hidden. Behold, they shall, for I have decreed it, begin to prevail against mine enemies from this very hour. If the modern saints gird up their loins and press forward in righteousness, then the members of the church will begin to prevail against their enemies from this time forward and eventually receive the precious scriptures we have just mentioned. 
and by hearkening to observe all the words which I, the Lord their God, shall speak unto them, they shall never cease to prevail until the kingdoms of the world are subdued under my feet and the earth is given unto the saints to possess it forever and ever. In fact, if the members of the church will begin to act like true, obedient saints, they will never cease to prevail, even from now until the Lord subdues the whole earth. But inasmuch as they keep not my commandments, and hearken not to observe all my words, the kingdoms of the world shall prevail against them. For they were set to be a light unto the world, and to be the saviors of men. And inasmuch as they are not the saviors of men, they are as salt that has lost its savor, and is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. Nevertheless, if the saints continue in their slothful adherence to the commandments of God, their fate is sealed and the Gentile powers will prevail against them. The saints were called to be a light unto the world and the saviors of men, and if they do not fulfill their calling, they will not be blessed nor preserved. Now the Lord is prepared to lay out the future for the people of Zion. There are two pathways, and they will choose one or the other, and it has already been decreed what the results will be. But verily I say unto you, I have decreed that your brethren, which have been scattered, shall return to the lands of their inheritances, and shall build up the waste places of Zion. For after much tribulation, as I have said unto you in a former commandment, cometh the blessing. Behold, this is the blessing which I have promised, after your tribulations, and the tribulations of your brethren, your redemption, and the redemption of your brethren, even their restoration to the land of Zion, to be established, no more to be thrown down. So the first decree of God is that if the saints will strive to keep God's commandments, they will prevail after much tribulation and inherit the land of Zion in due time. Nevertheless, if they pollute their inheritances, they shall be thrown down. For I will not spare them if they pollute their inheritances. It is God's eternal decree that those who pollute his promised land will be thrown down and cleansed from the land. It was true of the Jaredites, the Nephites, and the Lamanites, and it will prove to be true of the modern members of the church. They cannot pollute the land of Zion and continue to possess it. Now the Lord shifts his vision to the distant future when Zion will be repossessed by the saints. He says, Behold, I say unto you, the redemption of Zion must needs come by power. Therefore I will raise up unto my people a man who shall lead them like as Moses led the children of Israel. For ye are the children of Israel and of the seed of Abraham, and ye must needs be led out of bondage by power and with a stretched-out arm. So Zion will be regained in due time. It will be under a mighty leader, like unto Moses, and the saints of that day will take over Zion with mighty strength and great power. And as your fathers were led at the first, even so shall the redemption of Zion be. Therefore, let not your hearts faint. 
For I say not unto you as I said unto your fathers, Mine angels shall go up before you, but not my presence. Since the members of the church in Zion were shortly to be driven from the land and their leaders arrested, the Lord urged them not to be faint-hearted, for ultimately at some future time the Lord's people will prevail and take over this land. But I say unto you, Mine angels shall go up before you, and also my presence, and in time ye shall possess the goodly land. Not only will God raise up a mighty leader similar to Moses to lead them back, but even the hosts of heaven will go before them. Verily, verily, I say unto you that my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., is the man to whom I liken the servant to whom the Lord of the vineyard spake in the parable which I have given unto you. This verse implies that not only will God's angels go before them, but even Joseph Smith, which would have to be as a resurrected being, would be the one likened to Moses who will lead the saints triumphantly back to Zion. This glorious post-mortal ministry will fulfill part of Joseph Smith's patriarchal blessing, which said, quote, Thou, Joseph, shalt hold the keys of this ministry, even the presidency of this church, both in time and in eternity. Then it continues to say, Thou shalt stand upon the earth, when it shall reel to and fro as a drunken man, and be removed out of its place. Thou shalt stand when the mighty judgments go forth to the destruction of the wicked." Thou shalt stand on Mount Zion when the tribes of Jacob come shouting from the north, and with thy brethren, the seed of Ephraim, crown them in the name of Jesus Christ. Thou shalt see the Redeemer come in the clouds of heaven, and with the just receive the hallowed throngs, with shouts of hallelujah praise the Lord." Unquote. This patriarchal blessing can be found in the church archives, Patriarchal Blessing, Book, Volume 1, pages 3 to 4. Therefore let my servant Joseph Smith, Jr. say unto the strength of my house, My young men and the middle-aged, gather yourselves together unto the land of Zion, upon the land which I have bought with money that has been consecrated unto me. This verse anticipates the message which Joseph Smith will proclaim as a resurrected being when he gathers together the strength of Zion to return as a huge and mighty force to take over the promised land. Many of the saints who had purchased this land never gave up their deeds, even when they were evicted from Missouri under a proclamation of extermination. Those who capitulated and sold their land in Missouri apparently lost sight of the fact that they were abandoning land which had been previously consecrated to the Lord. This is why those who sold their lands in Jackson County were excommunicated. And let all the churches send up wise men with their monies and purchase lands, even as I have commanded them. It was in anticipation of the eventual repossession of the land of Zion that led the Lord to tell his saints who were wealthy to purchase as much of the land as possible. If they were, quote, wise, unquote, in the long-range perspective of the Lord, they would see the wisdom of securing as much as they could afford. 
and inasmuch as mine enemies come against you to drive you from my goodly land, which I have consecrated to be the land of Zion, even from your own lands, after these testimonies which ye have brought before me against them, ye shall curse them, and whomsoever ye curse, I will curse, and ye shall avenge me of mine enemies. The deeds on lands consecrated to the Lord constituted tangible testimonials against their enemies. These would eventually be the basis for pronouncing a terrible curse upon them, and when that curse took effect it would be totally devastating. That was the civil war. And my presence shall be with you even in avenging me of mine enemies unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. This curse which desecrated Missouri during the Civil War left its blight down to the third and fourth generation. Let no man be afraid to lay down his life for my sake. For whoso layeth down his life for my sake shall find it again. And whoso is not willing to lay down his life for my sake is not my disciple. The risk of martyrdom has always been associated with the ministry of the Lord's disciples. Even though most do not suffer martyrdom, they had to be willing to pay the price of life itself if that were necessary. It is my will that my servant Sidney Rigdon shall lift up his voice in the congregations in the eastern countries, in preparing the churches to keep the commandments which I have given unto them, concerning the restoration and redemption of Zion. Sidney Rigdon was called to raise up congregations of the church in the prosperous regions of the East so that wealthy disciples could provide the funds to purchase and consecrate regions of Missouri and bring them under the Lord's plan for the ultimate redemption of Zion. It is my will that my servant Parley P. Pratt and my servant Lyman White should not return to the land of their brethren until they have obtained companies to go up unto the land of Zion, by tens or by twenties, or by fifties or by an hundred, until they have obtained to the number of five hundred of the strength of my house. For the first time the Lord refers to Zion's camp, which the saints at Kirtland and branches throughout the east are to raise up for the redemption of Zion. There are to be five hundred men organized like the armies of ancient Israel in bodies of tens, fifties, and hundreds. Behold, this is my will. Ask, and ye shall receive. But men do not always do my will. Therefore, if you cannot obtain five hundred, seek diligently that peradventure you may obtain three hundred. And if ye cannot obtain three hundred, Seek diligently that peradventure ye may obtain one hundred. The missionaries and leaders of the church are to recruit as many as possible, but the Lord knows that men do not always respond to God's call. Therefore they are to raise what they can, if not five hundred, then three hundred, and if not three hundred, at least one hundred. But verily I say unto you a commandment I give unto you, that ye shall not go up unto the land of Zion, until you have obtained a hundred of the strength of my house to go up with you unto the land of Zion. But if not even a hundred respond to the call, they are to discontinue trying to send any kind of military brigade to Missouri. 
Of course, the Lord does not reveal the ultimate purpose of Zion's camp. He is going to use this expedition to demonstrate who is willing to give his life for the gospel. From among those who voluntarily enlist, Jesus will select the new quorums of twelve apostles and the first quorum of seventies. This will require nearly a hundred men, so this is the absolute minimum for Zion's camp. Of course, a hundred men attempting to restore the fleeing saints from Jackson County would be ridiculous, but at least the Lord will have a hundred men who will offer their lives and whom he can raise up to fill these new quorums. By responding to the prophet's call, these men had demonstrated their willingness to give their very lives, if necessary, for the cause of the gospel. Therefore, as I said unto you, Ask, and ye shall receive. Pray earnestly that peradventure my servant Joseph Smith, Jr. may go with you and preside in the midst of my people, and organize my kingdom upon the consecrated land, and establish the children of Zion upon the laws and commandments which have been and which shall be given unto you. Therefore the elders were to ask as many to join the brigade of Zion's camp as possible, and if a hundred or more responded, then Joseph Smith was to accompany them. Had five hundred volunteered, the Lord suggests that with his help, they could restore the saints to Jackson County and organize the people according to the laws and commandments which God had revealed. Unfortunately, 500 did not respond. All victory and glory is brought to pass unto you through your diligence, faithfulness, and prayers of faith. In the last analysis, the future depends upon the diligence, faithfulness, and prayerful humility of the saints. When these qualities are present, God's people can expect ultimate victory. Let my servant Parley P. Pratt journey with my servant Joseph Smith, Jr. Let my servant Lyman White journey with my servant Sidney Rigdon. Let my servant Hiram Smith journey with my servant Frederick G. Williams. Let my servant Orson Hyde journey with my servant Orson Pratt. Whithersoever my servant Joseph Smith, Jr. shall counsel them, in obtaining the fulfillment of these commandments which I have given unto you, and leave the residue in my hands. Even so. Amen. The Lord made Parley P. Pratt the companion of Joseph Smith for this expedition. Lyman White was to accompany Sidney Rigdon, Hiram Smith was to accompany Frederick G. Williams, and Orson Hyde was to go with Orson Pratt. Notice that the senior companion is the person who is to be, quote, accompanied, unquote, in each case by the junior companion. Notice also that the Lord says after they have done all they can to carry out his instructions, they should leave the residue in his hands. Section 104, Introduction As Joseph set out to find several hundred recruits for Zion's camp, he found it would take longer than he had supposed. Had he been able to announce that from this body a quorum of twelve apostles and the first seventy of quorum of seventy would be selected, he might have been overwhelmed with volunteers. But he didn't know this, and neither did they. In fact, the Lord was selectively deciding who would volunteer for this rescue mission without any promise of reward, but just because the Lord had requested it. 
While Joseph anxiously waited for reports from those responsible for the Zion's Camp project, a financial crisis was developing among the saints. They had completely failed to live the law of consecration as revealed in sections 42 and 82. This meant the church was without resources at a time when they were trying to complete the building of the temple and get ready for the march to Missouri. Joseph turned to the Lord, pleading for guidance. Section 104 in the Doctrine and Covenants was the result. And here's the text of that section. Verily I say unto you, my friends, I give unto you counsel and a commandment concerning all the properties which belong to the order which I commanded to be organized and established to be a united order and an everlasting order for the benefit of my church and for the salvation of men until I come. The Lord says he is going to dispose of all the property in the general storehouse which had been designated for the benefit of those who belong to the united order. With promise immutable and unchangeable, that inasmuch as those whom I commanded were faithful, they should be blessed with a multiplicity of blessings. The whole concept of the United Order was to provide security for the saints and financial support for the church. But this depended upon the faithfulness of the saints in keeping the commandments that they had made to develop their stewardships and contribute all their excess proceeds to the United Order storehouse. This should have resulted in a glorious blessing to both the saints and the church. But inasmuch as they were not faithful, they were nigh unto cursing. But if there is greed and cheating among the members of the United Order, then the whole system will be a curse instead of a blessing. Therefore, inasmuch as some of my servants have not kept the commandment, but have broken the covenant through covetousness and with feigned words, I have cursed them with a very sore and grievous curse. For I, the Lord, have decreed in my heart that inasmuch as any man belonging to the order shall be found a transgressor, or in other words, shall break the covenant with which ye are bound, he shall be cursed in his life and shall be trodden down by whom I will. For I, the Lord, am not to be mocked in these things. Many of the saints had been cursed instead of blessed, and all because they violated their covenants and tried to exploit the system instead of fulfilling their covenants to strengthen it. And all this, that the innocent among you may not be condemned with the unjust, and that the guilty among you may not escape, because I, the Lord, have promised unto you a crown of glory at my right hand. This had resulted in many of the innocent having to suffer along with the guilty. The Lord is therefore going to divide the people so that the storehouse is no longer available to the shiftless transgressors. Therefore, inasmuch as you are found transgressors, you cannot escape my wrath in your lives. Inasmuch as ye are cut off for transgression, Ye cannot escape the buffetings of Satan until the day of redemption. And now I give unto you power from this very hour, that if any man among you of the order is found a transgressor, and repenteth not of the evil, 
that ye shall deliver him over unto the buffetings of Satan, and he shall not have power to bring evil upon you. The presiding brethren are given authority to sort out the lazy covenant breakers and put them out on their own so they can no longer bring curses upon the honest and thrifty members of the order. It is wisdom in me. Therefore a commandment I give unto you, that ye shall organize yourselves and appoint every man his stewardship. From here on every man will be a steward unto himself. This is like the old saying among the early American settlers of, quote, root, hog, or die, unquote. That every man may give an account unto me of the stewardship which is appointed unto him. For it is expedient that I, the Lord, should make every man accountable as a steward over earthly blessings, which I have made and prepared for my creatures. Under this new order of things, every man who has entered into a covenant with God will be accountable unto God. I, the Lord, stretched out the heavens, and built the earth my very handiwork, and all things therein are mine. And it is my purpose to provide for my saints, for all things are mine. The whole idea of God's plan for the human family was to make it possible for them to have the necessities of life and enjoy the things of the earth in abundance. But it must needs be done in mine own way. And behold, this is the way that I, the Lord, have decreed to provide for my saints, that the poor shall be exalted, in that the rich are made low. But the plan of the gospel is to have every man treating his neighbor as himself. This means those who prosper will extend a helping hand to the poor and share the good fortunes of prosperity with those in need. Under this philosophy of life, the poor are exalted and the rich are humbled and feel impelled to help and elevate the needy. For the earth is full and there is enough and to spare. Yea, I prepared all things, and have given unto the children of men to be agents unto themselves. Therefore, if any man shall take of the abundance which I have made, and impart not his portion, according to the law of my gospel, unto the poor and the needy, he shall with the wicked lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. The Lord prepared the earth so that by voluntarily sharing with one another, there would be enough to provide the comforts of life for all. However, the greedy and conniving exploiters of the wealth of the earth are not building up a monopoly of security for themselves. They are actually digging dungeons in hell where they will be consigned. And now verily I say unto you concerning the properties of the order, Now the Lord has a plan for the distribution of the property of the united order. He is going to let those who are working for the kingdom enjoy the fruits thereof in direct proportion to their endeavors. As the plan unfolds, we discover the Lord expects them to pay a tenth of everything they produce into the general treasury of the church. In other words, the Lord is replacing the united order with a tithing system. Let my servant Sidney Rigdon have appointed unto him the place where he now resides, and the lot of the tannery for his stewardship, for his support while he is laboring in my vineyard, 
even as I will when I shall command him, and let all things be done according to the counsel of the order, and united consent or voice of the order which dwell in the land of Kirtland. And this stewardship and blessing I, the Lord, confer upon my servant Sidney Rigdon, for a blessing upon him and his seed after him. And I will multiply blessings upon him, inasmuch as he will be humble before me. The church tannery was built with United Order funds, but it is to be turned over to Sidney Rigdon to promote and develop according to the approval of the Council of the Order. And again, let my servant Martin Harris have appointed unto him for his stewardship the lot of land which my servant John Johnson obtained in exchange for his former inheritance, for him and his seed after him. And inasmuch as he is faithful, I will multiply blessings upon him and his seed after him. Martin Harris occupied a section of land which he will presumably be allowed to farm for his benefit and pay tithing on the proceeds. And let my servant Martin Harris devote his monies for the proclaiming of my words, according as my servant Joseph Smith, Jr. shall direct. Martin Harris is an experienced farmer and should prosper. The Lord suggests that he spend whatever he can afford to encourage the preaching of the gospel as directed by Joseph Smith. And again, let my servant Frederick G. Williams have the place upon which he now dwells. And let my servant Oliver Cowdery have the lot which is set off joining the house, which is to be for the printing office, which is lot number one, and also the lot upon which his father resides. And let my servants Frederick G. Williams and Oliver Cowdery have the printing office and all things that pertain unto it. And this shall be their stewardship, which shall be appointed unto them. And inasmuch as they are faithful, behold, I will bless and multiply blessings upon them. And this is the beginning of the stewardship which I have appointed them, for them and their seed after them. And inasmuch as they are faithful, I will multiply blessings upon them and their seed after them, even a multiplicity of blessings. Oliver Cowdery and Frederick G. Williams are to be partners in developing the printing office. This is the beginning of their stewardship, and verse 33 implies that they can build up an inheritance for their families from this business. And again, let my servant John Johnson have the house in which he lives and the inheritance, all save the ground which has been reserved for the building of my houses, which pertains to that inheritance, and those lots which have been named for my servant Oliver Cowdery. And inasmuch as he is faithful, I will multiply blessings upon him. And it is my will that he should sell the lots that are laid off for the building up of the city of my saints, inasmuch as it shall be made known to him by the voice of the Spirit, and according to the counsel of the order, and by the voice of the order. And this is the beginning of the stewardship which I have appointed unto him, for a blessing unto him and his seed after him. And inasmuch as he is faithful, I will multiply a multiplicity of blessings upon him.
John Johnson was consigned to somewhat large properties around the temple, which he is authorized to sell off as temple lots, and thereby build up the community of Kirtland. And again, let my servant Newell K. Whitney have appointed unto him the houses and lot where he now resides, and the lot and building on which the mercantile establishment stands, and also the lot which is on the corner south of the mercantile establishment, and also the lot on which the ashery is situated. Newell K. Whitney is another full-time officer in the church, and he is assigned the mercantile store as the means of providing for himself and his family. And all this I have appointed unto my servant Newell K. Whitney for his stewardship, for a blessing upon him and his seed after him, for the benefit of the mercantile establishment of my order, which I have established for my stake in the land of Kirtland. Yea, verily, this is the stewardship which I have appointed unto my servant N. K. Whitney, even this whole mercantile establishment, him and his agent, and his seed after him. And inasmuch as he is faithful in keeping my commandments, which I have given unto him, I will multiply blessings upon him and his seed after him, even a multiplicity of blessings. And again, let my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., have appointed unto him the lot which is laid off for the building of my house, which is forty rods long and twelve wide, and also the inheritance upon which his father now resides. And this is the beginning of the stewardship which I have appointed unto him for a blessing upon him and upon his father. For behold, I have reserved an inheritance for his father, for his support. Therefore he shall be reckoned in the house of my servant Joseph Smith, Jr. And I will multiply blessings upon the house of my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., inasmuch as he is faithful, even a multiplicity of blessings. Joseph Smith was to be provided a home along with that of his father so that they could be continually occupied in the work of the kingdom. And now a commandment I give unto you concerning Zion, that you shall no longer be bound as a united order to your brethren of Zion, only on this wise. After you are organized, you shall be called the united order of the stake of Zion, the city of Kirtland, and your brethren, after they are organized, shall be called the United Order of the City of Zion. And they shall be organized in their own names and in their own name. And they shall do their business in their own name and in their own names. And you shall do your business in your own name and in your own names. And this I have commanded to be done for your salvation and also for their salvation in consequence of their being driven out, and that which is to come. Now we come to a complete separation of the stake in Zion, located down in Missouri, from the stake located in Kirtland, Ohio. The covenants being broken through transgression, by covetousness and feigned words, therefore you are dissolved as a united order with your brethren that you are not bound only up to this hour unto them, only on this wise, as I said, 
by loan, as shall be agreed by this order in council, as your circumstances will admit, and the voice of the council direct. The Lord declares that the covenants between Zion and Kirtland can no longer be maintained. Sacred relations have been violated, perhaps by both sides, and therefore from now on they will do their business at arm's length and as independent agencies. At this point, the Lord wants something clearly understood concerning all these stewardships he has been discussing. And again, a commandment I give unto you concerning your stewardship which I have appointed unto you. Behold, all these properties are mine, or else your faith is vain, and ye are found hypocrites, and the covenants which ye have made unto me are broken. And if the properties are mine, then ye are stewards, Otherwise ye are no stewards. But verily I say unto you, I have appointed unto you to be stewards over mine house, even stewards indeed. And for this purpose I have commanded you to organize yourselves, even to print my words, the fullness of my scriptures, the revelations which I have given unto you, and which I shall hereafter from time to time give unto you for the purpose of building up my church and kingdom on the earth, and to prepare my people for the time when I shall dwell with them, which is nigh at hand. The Lord makes it emphatically clear that all of these stewards are responsible to him, and that the stewardships which had been designated for various full-time workers in the kingdom are not theirs, but the Lord's. In spite of what they may think, they do not own these stewardships. They are merely servants of God, administering them for the Lord. Under the United Order, there was a common storehouse, but the stewards are now instructed to set up two treasuries. The first one is called a sacred treasury, where the proceeds from the sale of the scriptures and other sacred writings will be secured. The second treasury will be the treasury of the order, and all tithing and proceeds from each stewardship will be collected there. Here is what the Lord said concerning the sacred treasury, which is under the custody of certain designated stewards. And ye shall prepare for yourselves a place for a treasury, and consecrate it unto my name. And ye shall appoint one among you to keep the treasury, and he shall be ordained unto this blessing. And there shall be a seal upon the treasury, and all the sacred things shall be delivered into the treasury. And no man among you shall call it his own, or any part of it, for it shall belong to you all with one accord. And I give it unto you from this very hour, and now see to it that ye go to and make use of the stewardship which I have appointed unto you, exclusive of the sacred things, for the purpose of printing these sacred things, as I have said. And the avails of the sacred things shall be had in the treasury, and a seal shall be upon it and it shall not be used or taken out of the treasury by any one. Neither shall the seal be loosed which shall be placed upon it, only by the voice of the order or by commandment. And thus shall ye preserve the avails of the sacred things in the treasury for sacred and holy purposes. 
and this shall be called the sacred treasury of the Lord, and a seal shall be kept upon it, that it may be holy and consecrated unto the Lord. Here's what the Lord said concerning the second treasury, which serves the entire order. And again, there shall be another treasury prepared, and a treasurer appointed to keep the treasury, and a seal shall be placed upon it, and all monies that you receive in your stewardships, by improving upon the properties which I have appointed unto you, in houses, or in lands, or in cattle, or in all things, save it be the holy and sacred writings, which I have reserved unto myself for holy and sacred purposes, shall be cast into the treasury as fast as you receive monies, by hundreds, or by fifties, or by twenties, or by tens, or by fives. Or in other words, if any man among you obtain five dollars, let him cast them into the treasury, or if he obtain ten, or twenty, or fifty, or an hundred, let him do likewise. And let not any among you say that it is his own, for it shall not be called his, nor any part of it. And there shall not any part of it be used, or taken out of the treasury, only by the voice and common consent of the order. And this shall be the voice and common consent of the order, that any man among you say to the treasurer, I have need of this to help me in my stewardship, if it be five dollars, or if it be ten dollars, or twenty, or fifty, or a hundred. The treasurer shall give unto him the sum which he requires to help him in his stewardship. Notice that the general treasury is for the benefit of the entire order. Anyone needing special funds to operate his stewardship is entitled to request funds from this source on the assumption that it will help him magnify his stewardship. All transgressors can be sternly dealt with by the council, and in some cases they can be completely severed from the order. Until he be found a transgressor, and it is manifest before the council of the order plainly that he is an unfaithful and an unwise steward. But so long as he is in full fellowship and is faithful and wise in his stewardship, this shall be his token unto the treasurer that the treasurer shall not withhold. Even the treasurer can be removed if charges are brought against him and found to be true. But in case of transgression, the treasurer shall be subject unto the counsel and voice of the order. And in case the treasurer is found an unfaithful and an unwise steward, he shall be subject to the counsel and voice of the order, and shall be removed out of his place, and another shall be appointed in his stead. Now the Lord has some specific instructions to give to the ministers of the order concerning their debts. He says, And again verily I say unto you concerning your debts, Behold, it is my will that you shall pay all your debts, and it is my will that you shall humble yourselves before me, and obtain this blessing by your diligence and humility and the prayer of faith. And inasmuch as you are diligent and humble, and exercise the prayer of faith, behold, I will soften the hearts of those to whom you are in debt, 
until I shall send means unto you for your deliverance. Therefore write speedily to New York, and write according to that which shall be dictated by my Spirit, and I will soften the hearts of those to whom you are in debt, that it shall be taken away out of their minds to bring affliction upon you. And inasmuch as ye are humble and faithful, and call upon my name, behold, I will give you the victory. I give unto you a promise, that you shall be delivered this once out of your bondage. Inasmuch as you obtain a chance to loan money by hundreds or thousands, even until you shall loan enough to deliver yourself from bondage, it is your privilege. It is interesting that the Lord is willing to have his own properties, which comprise the stewardships of the order, utilize his pledges to get the order out of debt. However, he warns that he will only do this once. And pledge the properties which I have put into your hands, this once, by giving your names by common consent or otherwise, as it shall seem good unto you. I give unto you this privilege this once. And behold, if you proceed to do the things which I have laid before you, according to my commandments, all these things are mine, and ye are my stewards. And the Master will not suffer his house to be broken up. Even so, amen. Notice that the Lord puts his whole arrangement on a sound business basis, and he is doing this because he does not want his house broken up. Section 105, Introduction The call to the male members of the church to join the Zion's camp received a slow response. Scarcely 200 men had signed up by the 5th of May, 1834, when Joseph Smith decided they could wait no longer, and so the march began. Heber C. Kimball describes his feelings as they launched out on their journey. Quote, Truly this was a solemn morning for me. I took leave of my wife and children and friends, not knowing whether I would see them again in the flesh, as myself and brethren were threatened, both in this country of Ohio and also Missouri, by enemies that they would destroy us and exterminate us from the land. This is in Smith and Jodal, Doctrine and Covenants Commentary, page 668. For barely 200 men to think they could challenge the mobs of Jackson County was an extremely hazardous venture. The lawless rabble in Missouri had raised mobs in excess of 200 on a number of occasions, and the Missourians would be fighting on their own ground with virtually unlimited resources. No doubt Joseph hoped there would be a substantial number of armed men from the camps in Zion, but that is not the way it turned out. In fact, a huge mob from three counties had begun to collect where they could intercede and stop Zion's camp from ever reaching the Mormon refugees. These refugees were saints who had escaped across the Missouri River and were surviving through temporary sympathy of the Gentiles in Clay County. Joseph Smith and his little band had just reached the fork between Little and Fishing Rivers, when they stopped because of a threatening storm. 
Providentially, this sudden fury of bad weather saved their lives. They would have had no way of knowing that a huge mob from three counties had gathered not far from the forks and planned to ambush Joseph Smith and his followers before they ever reached the Mormon settlements. But the storm changed everything. Hail pounded down with such fury that it broke the limbs off the trees. Some trees were uprooted, and the violence of the storm completely disheartened the mob so that they scattered in every direction trying to find shelter. Meanwhile, the prophet and his followers were able to protect themselves in their improvised camp and thereby weathered out the storm. By morning, there was no longer any hostile mobsters left to threaten them, and Joseph Smith discovered that the Lord had a completely new course of instructions for him. This is known as section 105. Verily I say unto you who have assembled yourselves together, that you may learn my will concerning the redemption of mine afflicted people. This revelation was given June 2, 1834, one day after the deadly storm. Apparently the priesthood in the camp had assembled to petition the Lord concerning what they should do next. Behold, I say unto you, were it not for the transgressions of my people, speaking concerning the church and not individuals, they might have been redeemed even now. But the Lord had a score to settle with the disciples before he gave them their new instructions. This verse reveals a rather amazing fact that if the church both in Zion and Kirtland had been more obedient, the saints would have been rescued from their adversaries even before now. But behold, they have not learned to be obedient to the things which I required at their hands, but are full of all manner of evil, and do not impart of their substance as becometh saints to the poor and afflicted among them, the Lord is not only angry with their disobedience and evil ways, but he is particularly offended by their greedy selfishness and their avaricious refusal to share with those in need. Of course, this revelation was not addressed to Zion's camp as much as it was to the whole church. After all, many of these valiant members of the church would later be made apostles and members of the first quorum of seventy, but the church as a whole was guilty of conduct highly offensive to the Lord. And are not united according to the union required by the law of the celestial kingdom. The Zion's camp had united with Joseph to make a desperate effort to save the saints in Zion. But why weren't there at least 500 as the Lord had requested? This shabby turnout was an insult to the Creator. This was not the kind of support and unity the Lord required from candidates for the celestial kingdom. And Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise, I cannot receive her unto myself, and my people must needs be chastened until they learn obedience, if it must needs be by the things which they suffer. The Lord wants his church to know that they are being deliberately chastened and for a just cause. I speak not concerning those who are appointed to lead my people, who are the first elders of my church, for they are not all under this condemnation. 
The Savior wants the people to know that he is not talking about the leaders of the church, for the Lord had nothing but commendation for their sacrifices and fervent obedience. But I speak concerning my churches abroad. There are many who will say, Where is their God? Behold, he will deliver them in time of trouble. Otherwise, we will not go up unto Zion, and will keep our monies. There were some cynical, selfish members of the church, particularly in the East, who were prosperous and could have furnished the means to strengthen the church, but they had not. They sneered and said that the Lord did not make bare his arm and rescue the saints in Missouri. They certainly were not going to take the chance of going to Zion and risking their wealth. Therefore, in consequence of the transgressions of my people, it is expedient in me that mine elders should wait for a little season for the redemption of Zion. So the Lord tells his leaders to be patient and not expect Zion to be redeemed as yet, because the church doesn't deserve it. That they themselves may be prepared, and that my people may be taught more perfectly, and have experience, and know more perfectly concerning their duty, and the things which I require at their hands. The Lord wants the leaders of the church to go forth among the saints and teach them the fundamentals of God's plan for them. They are to be vigorously instructed in their duty to God and the necessity of having them more obedient so he can bless them. And this cannot be brought to pass until mine elders are endowed with power from on high. Furthermore, Jesus wants the members of the church to know that Zion cannot be redeemed until after the temple in Kirtland is completed, and they have received their endowments from on high. For behold, I have prepared a great endowment and blessing to be poured out upon them, inasmuch as they are faithful and continue in humility before me, the Lord wants them to know that he has prepared this great endowment and is anxious to share it with them. All he needs is a humble, faithful people who are worthy to receive it. Therefore it is expedient in me that mine elders should wait for a little season for the redemption of Zion. For all of these reasons the leaders of the church must bide their time in patient waiting. The redemption of Zion is yet in the future. For behold, I do not require at their hands to fight the battles of Zion. For as I said in a former commandment, even so will I fulfill, I will fight your battles. The Zion's camp has just had a vivid demonstration of a furious storm, which no doubt saved them from certain death at the hands of the huge mob. The Lord wants them to know that he is perfectly capable of fighting their battles in a very powerful and decisive manner. However, he must be justified in showing forth his power. That requires a faithful and fully tested people. Behold, the destroyer I have sent forth to destroy and lay waste mine enemies. And not many years hence, they shall not be left to pollute mine heritage, and to blaspheme my name upon the lands which I have consecrated for the gathering together of my saints. 
As the Lord revealed to Joseph Smith on Christmas Day in 1832, there is a devastating civil war brewing between the states. Therefore, the destroyer has already set up his satanic plan. In fact, the Lord could have revealed that it was only 25 years away. Behold, I have commanded my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., to say unto the strength of my house, even my warriors, my young men, and middle-aged, to gather together for the redemption of my people, and throw down the towers of mine enemies, and scatter their watchmen. But the strength of mine house have not hearkened unto my words. But inasmuch as there are those who have hearkened unto my words, I have prepared a blessing and an endowment for them, if they continue faithful. The Lord told Joseph Smith to rally the strong young men of the kingdom in order to assist the powers of evil in Missouri. But where were the youth? They didn't come. Older men had to take their places, and even these were few in number. Nevertheless, they were going to be given a great blessing. This would happen as soon as the temple in Kirtland was finished. I have heard their prayers, and will accept their offering. And it is expedient in me that they should be brought thus far for a trial of their faith. The Lord wants Zion's camp to know that they were brought on this dangerous mission to try their faith. And now verily I say unto you a commandment I give unto you, that as many as have come up hither, that can stay in the region round about, let them stay. Now any of Zion's camp who want to stay in Missouri can do so. And those that cannot stay, who have families in the east, let them tarry for a little season, inasmuch as my servant Joseph shall appoint unto them. For I will counsel him concerning this matter, and all things whatsoever he shall appoint unto them shall be fulfilled." All of the others can return to their homes when Joseph the prophet gives them permission to do so. Perhaps even Joseph does not know it, but this body of men have one more trial facing them which must be met and endured. And let all my people who dwell in the regions round about be very faithful and prayerful and humble before me, and reveal not the things which I have revealed unto them, until it is wisdom in me that they should be revealed. Talk not of judgments, neither boast of faith nor of mighty works, but carefully gather together as much in one region as can be, consistently with the feelings of the people. Anyone who is familiar with the prophecies of the Lord knows that devastating judgments await the wicked, but the Lord warns His servants that they are not to talk about these coming disasters. Neither are they to boast about the mighty works which God has performed for the church, nor the fruits of their faith and the miracles that have occurred. Their task is to quietly settle in small numbers among the people and deliberately avoid arousing their political jealousies. And behold, I will give unto you favor and grace in their eyes, that you may rest in peace and safety while you are saying unto the people, Execute judgment and justice for us according to law, and redress us of our wrongs. By cultivating the goodwill of the people, 
the saints can gain their support for the redress of the wrongs they have suffered. Now behold, I say unto you, my friends, in this way you may find favor in the eyes of the people, until the army of Israel becomes very great. The Lord says there is wisdom in cultivating the goodwill of the people until the armies of Israel are significantly strong to insist upon their rights as a matter of justice. And I will soften the hearts of the people as I did the heart of Pharaoh from time to time until my servant Joseph Smith, Jr. and mine elders, whom I have appointed, shall have time to gather up the strength of my house. The Lord promises to soften the hearts of the people from time to time, just as he did with the Pharaoh during the days of ancient Israel. By this means, the Lord will have time to convert and gather up the strength of God's people in the latter days. And to have sent wise men to fulfill that which I have commanded concerning the purchasing of all the lands in Jackson County that can be purchased, and in the adjoining counties round about. The Lord wants the saints to send wise men into Jackson County and quietly buy up all the land that becomes available. Then they are to purchase land in adjoining counties. The idea is to have the region occupied by purchase and thereby ensure the peace and security which should prevail in this sacred land. For it is my will that these lands should be purchased, and after they are purchased, that my saints should possess them according to the laws of consecration which I have given. And after these lands are purchased, I will hold the armies of Israel guiltless in taking possession of their own lands, which they have previously purchased with their monies, and of throwing down the towers of mine enemies that may be upon them, and scattering their watchmen, and avenging me of mine enemies unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. The Lord is deeply offended by the mobs that have driven the saints from their homes and confiscated their property. He therefore intended to gradually develop the strength of Zion's armies until they are able to repair the depredations of the mobsters. The Lord says he will justify the use of force in restoring the property which was purchased by the saints. But first, let my army become very great, and let it be sanctified before me, that it may become fair as the sun, and clear as the moon, and that her banners may be terrible unto all nations. But no direct action should be taken until Zion's forces are perfectly capable of enforcing the rights of the saints. The Lord's army will not come to avenge the saints, but simply to regain their property for which they hold the deeds. This army is to have a reputation for fairness and justice, not vengeance. Gradually, this righteous army will be invited to prevail over other nations as well. That the kingdoms of this world may be constrained to acknowledge that the kingdom of Zion is in very deed the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Therefore, let us become subject unto her laws. Through a righteous administration, the children of Zion will gradually win over the kingdoms of various nations to accept God's law and live under its righteous precepts. Verily I say unto you, it is expedient in me 
that the first elders of my church should receive their endowment from on high in my house, which I have commanded to be built unto my name in the land of Kirtland. But meanwhile the immediate need is to have the leaders of the church receive their endowments in the sacred house which is being built in Kirtland. And let those commandments which I have given concerning Zion and her law be executed and fulfilled after her redemption. As for Zion, the Lord says, Let the new Jerusalem and all of the glorious things which will be accomplished there be postponed for the time being, because they can be accomplished after the redemption of Zion. There has been a day of calling, but the time has come for a day of choosing, and let those be chosen that are worthy. The Lord says this is a day of calling, so that all who think they are worthy to be called can gather together. However, when it is time for the redemption of Zion, there will be a day of careful choosing. This implies that when it comes time to build a new Jerusalem, it will be such a sacred privilege, it will require individual clearance from the church leaders in order to participate. And it shall be manifest unto my servant by the voice of the Spirit, those that are chosen, and they shall be sanctified. In fact, the clearance or recommend will not only require approval of church leaders, but also the approval of the Spirit. And inasmuch as they follow the counsel which they receive, they shall have power after many days to accomplish all things pertaining to Zion. The Lord confirms that after many days, all that has been prophesied concerning Zion will be fulfilled. And again I say unto you, Sue for peace, not only to the people that have smitten you, but also to all people. And lift up an ensign of peace, and make a proclamation of peace unto the ends of the earth, and make proposals for peace unto those who have smitten you, according to the voice of the Spirit which is in you, and all things shall work together for your good. Therefore be faithful, and behold, and lo, I am with you even unto the end. Even so, amen. The Lord says this is not a time for confrontation and demands for justice and civil rights. Rather, it is a day to sue for peace, turning the other cheek, and waiting for the Lord to redeem Zion in his own due time. Meanwhile, the Lord wants the saints to sue for peace, even among those who have smitten them. He says that if they follow this command, it will work together for their good. Now, a historical note. On the 23rd of June, 1834, the camp continued its march, and the next day they arrived near the home of Algernon Sidney Gilbert on the banks of Rush Creek. On the 25th, after a brief rest, the camp was separated into small groups to quiet the feelings of the people who were concerned about so large a group moving through their county. The volunteers in Zion's camp had not engaged in any direct conflict, but they had been warned that they would yet have a trial of their faith before they were released. It struck just before they were dispersed among the saints in Clay County. Sixty-eight members of the camp were struck down with deadly cholera. 
This disease is highly contagious and the bacteria is spread by flies and contaminated water. Cholera settles in the intestines and quickly spreads its poison all through the body. This causes vomiting and diarrhea, which may put the body into such a state of shock that the patient dies. Fourteen of those who were attacked by cholera passed away. One of them was among Joseph's most trusted friends, that's Algernon Sidney Gilbert, who was in charge of the storehouse in Zion. When the cholera had subsided, Joseph called a council of high priests together, and on July the 3rd, 1834, he organized the High Council for Zion, similar to the one which had been organized earlier in Kirtland. Six days later, Joseph Smith departed for home, along with a number of his brethren. If you are enjoying this podcast with W. Cleon Skousen, you might enjoy his lecture recordings while at Brigham Young University, found at skousenlibrary.com.